finish Colossians up this morning, and then uh, beginning next Sunday uh, through December, uh, we're going to just spend a, four weeks in the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to do some Christmassy type uh, type messages through Luke, and then beginning in January, we're going to work our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and that will probably take us probably through the entire year. That's a long book. We might take a couple breaks. I'm hoping we do. Otherwise, I'll be a blithering idiot. Uh, but but anyway, uh, that's the plan. Janice Munson, 39, and her husband Dan were on a shopping trip in Littleton, Colorado. When they came behind a silver minivan traveling along the road at a snail's pace. Don't you love that? The minivan swerved onto the shoulder and then in the other direction towards oncoming traffic. Janice glanced into the minivan and was startled to see that the driver appeared to be asleep. Dan turned on his emergency flashers blinking his headlight his headlights on and off and he began waving his arm out the window to warn the oncoming traffic that something was wrong janice knew she also had to act and without a word to her husband she jumped from the car and within seconds she was running alongside of the van. She grabbed the door handle, banged on the window and yelled, you're going the wrong way! The woman only stared back with a deer in the headlights look. Janice then swung the door open, vaulted inside the moving van and slammed the gear shift into park, bringing it to an abrupt stop. Seconds later, a stream of cars coming from the opposite direction whizzed safely past the van and its occupants. Afterwards, police told Janice that the van driver was diabetic and was suffering from insulin shock. She was taken to a nearby hospital, treated, and released. In his book, A World Without Heroes, George Roche defines heroism as an extraordinary act of goodness performed by ordinary people from whom we do not expect it. This was true of Janice Munson a 39-year-old wife and mom, just an ordinary person who performed an extraordinary act. A selfless act, whereby she put her own life on the line for the sake of another. By definition, Janice was a hero. And this morning, as we dive into the closing part of this letter to the Colossians, we are going to work our way through a list of heroes. Not super saints, but ordinary people who counted the cost, who took the risk, and performed selfless acts for the sake of another. The Apostle Paul. 
So if you have your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 4, and we will pick up where we left off, beginning with verse 7, where Paul shines the light on these ordinary people who helped him to accomplish God's work. He says, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, and that, that, that CH should be treated like a K, if that helps, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. They will inform you about the whole situation here. As a reminder, Paul is in confinement in Rome. And he will be there for two years. But even so, given the circumstances, Paul continues to do the work he was called to do. And he does it with the help of others. In this passage, at the top of his list is Tychicus. Tychicus was a native of Asia. And he traveled a lot with Paul. They met towards the end of Paul's third missionary journey when Paul planned to collect a special love offering from the churches in Macedonia to deliver to the poor and the needy in Jerusalem. On this mission, a delegation was chosen to accompany Paul. Antichicus was one of them. As a messenger, he joined Paul in his mission to Jerusalem. And from that point on, he remained on as a faithful and capable partner in the ministry. If you recall in our study of the letter of Titus, who remembers that? Titus. Tychicus was one of two men mentioned by Paul who could be sent to the island of Crete to relieve Titus as the pastor. You remember that? And later on, Paul sent Tychicus to Ephesus to take Timothy's place as the pastor. So Timothy could visit with Paul before Paul was to be executed. So Tychicus spent a lot of time with Paul, regarded as a beloved brother, a faithful minister, a fellow bondservant, suggesting that he was permitted by the Romans to spend time with Paul to meet his needs during confinement. Tychicus was an ordinary person who was loyal and dependable. Something we all can be. Loyal and dependable. And he was someone who was very familiar with Paul's situation. And he could be trusted with that information. Paul tells the Colossians that if you have any questions about me, Questions about the ministry. Any questions at all, just ask Tychicus. He will fill you in. 
Now, Tychicus carries this letter to the Colossians. He carries a letter to the Ephesians. And he also carries a personal letter to Philemon. But he's not alone. He's accompanied by Onesimus. And together they travel some 1,000 miles one way from Rome to the western region of Asia Minor to hand deliver these letters. The very same letters that you and I are reading today. Onesimus. That's a name you might know. Especially if you've read that small letter of Philemon. If you recall, Onesimus was a slave. A runaway slave. Onesimus was the property of Philemon. From the town of Colossae. And he ran away with some of the master's money. And he made his way to Rome. And it just so happens, of all people, he runs into Paul. Who leads him to Jesus Christ. Onesimus was a runaway slave. Considered good for nothing. And if he had been caught as a runaway slave, he could have been executed on the spot. But if you notice, Paul describes him not as good for nothing, but as faithful. Faithful. He had only been with Paul for a short time, but he had already proved himself as a dedicated helper to Paul. Onesimus is hard at work, not because he has to, but because he wants to. He has a different motivation for service. It's God's grace. And he has a brand new identity in Christ. Paul calls him a beloved brother. And as a beloved brother, he needs to make things right with Philemon. Another Christian brother who's a thousand miles away. That's something we should do as well. No matter what it takes, at least on our end, we need to try to make things right when things are wrong. So Tychicus, a veteran minister, and Onesimus, a new convert, travel together with a personal letter from Paul asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus and to receive him back as a brother. It's a great picture of reconciliation. Do you want to hear something interesting? Early church history tells us that some 50 years later, 50 years later, the pastor of Antioch named Ignatius, okay, Ignatius, sent a letter to the church in Ephesus. You following? In in his letter, Ignatius praised the wonderful pastor of Ephesus. 
And the name of that pastor was Onesimus. Now, I am not sure if this is the same Onesimus or not. I'm not sure how common that name was. But I would like to think it is the same Onesimus because it brings his story to a beautiful conclusion. This ordinary person who was once a runaway slave was forgiven. Treated as a brother. And later he became a pastor. That's a great ending to his story. Next, beginning with verse 10. Paul mentions six more ordinary people who were remaining with him in Rome. Aristarchus, Mark, Justus, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. The first three are Jews. The second three are Gentiles. Now Mark has already mentioned Epaphras early in this letter. We already know him. Two of them, Mark and Luke, are, should be well known to us because they are gospel writers. And then three of them are probably new to most of us. Aristarchus, Justice, and Demas. So Paul writes, verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions if he comes to you. Welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. It's Jews. They're Jews. And they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. And also... Demas. Aristarchus was a Jewish believer from Thessalonica who had essentially given up his life to fiercely serve the Lord during Paul's third missionary journey. Paul calls him my fellow prisoner, which could suggest one of two things. Aristarchus had been arrested, taken prisoner, and he ended up in confinement along with Paul. Or it could suggest that he had arranged with the Romans to enter into confinement with Paul, even though he had not committed a crime. In either case, we might say this guy is all in when it comes to helping. 
Paul. He's all in. Now there is something else about this ordinary person that's not mentioned here, but it's worth pointing out. It would seem that Aristarchus had a habit of being with Paul when there was trouble. He was like a tube of toothpaste. When it's squeezed, when it's pressure, it appears. For example, in Ephesus, when Paul started a riot over the idols made to the goddess Diana, an angry mob tried to seize Paul. Paul escaped. But poor Aristarchus did not. And he was dragged off by the mob and presumably took some lumps on behalf of Paul. When Paul was shipwrecked on the island of Malta because of a terrible storm on the high seas, Aristarchus was also there with Paul. Now as Paul is in confinement in Rome... There he is too. No matter what, stuck, just stuck to Paul like glue. And that's how we should be described. When the going gets tough, through thick and thin, we should be sticking together until the end. And speaking of the end, tradition tells us that Aristarchus was martyred in Rome by Emperor Nero. Okay, that brings us to Mark. And his name takes us all the way back to the first missionary journey of Paul. When the apostle, together with Barnabas, were sent out by the church in Antioch. On their journey, they took with them Mark, who was the cousin of Barnabas. It would seem that Mark was a little spoiled. We might say that he was soft around the edges. And when things got tough on the journey, Mark wanted to go home. And so he left them and abandoned them on the journey. Well, later in preparation for their second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take Mark again. And Paul said, no way, Jose. He's not ready. And that led to a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. So sharp that Paul and Barnabas decided to go their separate ways. Paul partnered with Silas. While Barnabas took Mark with him to Cyprus. And there they ministered together. But it's here, in this letter, that we learn years later, after spending some quality time with the Apostle Peter, that Mark ends up in Rome with Paul. Somehow, Mark had won his way back into Paul's good graces. And everything that had happened in the past was but a distant memory to Paul. Now, Paul considers Mark to be profitable for the ministry. And he wants to send him to Colossae with instructions that he be welcomed by that church. 
Mark is an encouragement to every one of us who has failed. Everyone who has failed. He had strayed. He took off when the going got tough, but he was given a second chance. Mark took advantage of it, and he proved himself faithful, and eventually he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write a gospel. The gospel of Mark. In verse 11, Aristarchus and Mark are linked with another name, Jesus, who is called Justice. We know nothing about Justice except that he was a Jewish believer who took on a Roman name, which was common in those days. And he was a fellow worker in the ministry and said to be of a great encouragement to Paul. Or we could say from the Greek that he was like soothing medicine to Paul. Like soothing medicine. That's the kind of man justice was. And that's the kind of people we should be. Encouraging and soothing and comforting to one another. In verse 12, Paul mentions Epaphras. And if you recall, we met him at the beginning of this letter. Epaphras had started the church in Colossae. He was their pastor, and it was he who traveled 1,000 miles from Colossae to Rome to share with Paul the concerns that he had about the false teachers who were threatening this young church. Concerns which prompted this very letter of the Colossians back to them. So we already know about him. But there's one thing that Paul says about him I want to focus on here. Epaphras labored. We're, we're told Epaphras labored, or we might say he agonized in prayer for the Colossians. He agonized in prayer. This man loved his brothers and sisters so much that he agonized in prayer on their behalf. He wanted to see them grow in their faith to learn the will of God and to honor God with their lives. That was his prayer. In a nutshell, Epaphras prayed well because he cared well. There's a connection. Epaphras prayed well because he cared well. And that's something for all of us to think about, isn't it? He prayed well because he cared well. Then we come to Luke, who's not just a physician, he's a beloved physician. How many of you have beloved doctors and dentists? No. Didn't think so. Luke was a Greek believer. A well-educated and highly trained man. An ordinary person uniquely prepared by God for a man like Paul. An ordinary person prepared by God for a man like Paul. Luke was important to Paul, traveling with him on his second and third missionary journeys. 
documenting everything he experienced in great detail. And I suspect that as a physician, Luke cared for Paul when he took his beatings. When he suffered from various ailments due to his confinements. And as he coped with his condition he called a thorn in his flesh. Luke was a gifted researcher and writer. He's the only Gentile writer in the Bible. And by the sheer number of words, by volume, he wrote the majority of the New Testament. It's not Paul. It's Luke. He wrote the majority of the New Testament when you add the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts together. He wrote them both. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul's very last letter before his execution, we learn that Luke was the only one left by Paul's side. For it would seem that the rest had been sent out on, a, on ministry assignments elsewhere. Luke was the last one in Paul's corner, sticking with Paul to the very end. Even at his execution, there was Luke. In contrast, we come to Demas. And look at verse 14. What does Paul say about Demas in verse 14? And also Demas. (laughs) That's it. Nothing else. And also Demas. So what's that about? Well, Demas was from Thessalonica. He traveled with Paul to several places and for a while he worked out really well. But here it would seem that Paul was sensing that something something wasn't quite right. And sure enough, it would eventually bear itself out. In Paul's last letter, the second letter to Timothy, Chapter 4, verse 10. While Paul is in prison the second time, and near the end of his life, Paul says this. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. and gone to Thessalonica. Demas was one, the only, close partner of Paul who left because he traded the things of God for the things of this world. It would seem that Demas tried to serve two masters, which Jesus said was impossible. And his affections turned from the things above to the things below, to the things this world prizes to the things this world values. A man bought a new hunting dog. 
eager to see how the dog would perform, the man took him took him out to track a bear. No sooner had they gotten into the woods than the dog picked up the trail. Suddenly he stopped, sniffed the ground, and headed in a new direction. He had caught the scent of a deer that had crossed the bear's path. A few moments later, he halted again, this time smelling a rabbit that had crossed the path of the deer. On and on it went until finally the breathless hunter caught up with his dog only to find him barking triumphantly down the hole of a field mouse. This is a warning to all of us, for if we are not careful, we can backslide and become just like that hunting dog. We start out on the right trail, following Jesus Christ, but soon our attention is diverted to things of lesser importance. One pursuit leads to another until we've strayed from our intended purpose. Apparently, this is what happened to Demas. He drifted away until eventually he deserted Paul. Okay, beginning with verse 15. Paul wraps it up with these final words. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and you, for your part, Read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, again the CH is treated like a K, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment, Grace be with you. That's it. Now we know nothing about Memphis. Other than she is in Laodicea and a church apparently meets in her house. And so moving on to verse 16, we read something Interesting, that is the subject of debate amongst theologians. Paul says there is a letter that was sent to the church of the Laodiceans. And this letter would be coming from them to the church in Colossae, to the Colossians. Some suggest that Paul wrote a letter specifically to the Laodiceans. A letter we do not have in the Bible. A letter that seems to be missing and lost. That's what some say. I, along with others, have a different view. I think this letter that Paul is referring to is the letter to the Ephesians. And let me explain. As I already mentioned, Tychicus and Onesimus were carrying several letters from Rome, and one of these letters was to the church 
in Ephesus. And this letter is what we call a circular letter. Have you heard that term before? A circular letter. A letter that was meant to be passed around from church to church to church. And this is how it worked. A church would receive the original letter. And a scribe or or a secretary would make a word-for-word copy of it. Counting the words to ensure the copy was exact. Then that church would forward the letter to the next church on the postal route. They had a postal route. So they would forward that letter on the postal route until that letter made its full rounds. So in this case, I think Paul is saying that when the Laodiceans get the letter from the Ephesians, they will make their copy and then forward it to the Colossians. And likewise, as a swap, the Colossians are to send their letter from Paul to the Laodiceans. That's what I think Paul is referring to here. There's not a missing letter. There's not a lost letter. That's my opinion. Now if you notice, the last name listed by Paul is Archippus. And I'm not sure, but I think Archippus is the son of Philemon. He's the son of Philemon and the pastor of the Colossian church in the absence of Epaphras. And I say that because Archippus is also mentioned at the beginning of this personal letter to Philemon. Paul says to him, Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received from the Lord and fulfill it just like Tychicus has. Just like Onesimus has. Like Aristarchus has. Like Mark has. Justice has. Epaphras has. And Luke has. Fulfill it just like they have. I want to see you do the same. So Archippus, stay with it. Hang in there. Then in the last verse which is common for Paul, he takes the pen from the secretary or from the scribe, he takes the pen and in his own hand he finishes the letter. That's what's happening here. In this last verse, he takes the pen and he writes the last piece, the last sentence. And he says, Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. In his closing remark, Paul wants the Colossians to remember his confinement. Because his confinement represented the cost and the commitment he made to the Lord and to those who need to know the Lord. And his hope was that they may be blessed with God's grace as a result. I want to close with a quote from D.L. Moody. You know that name? D.L. Moody. And this is what he says. The world has yet to see what God can do with and for 
and through and in and by the man who is fully and wholly consecrated, dedicated to him. Then he says, I will do my utmost to be that man. Moody, who was a shoe salesman. That's what he was. A shoe salesman. Before dedicating his life to Christ and becoming one of the greatest evangelists of all times, was talking about ordinary people Just ordinary people who are willing to surrender their lives totally to the Lord. Who knows? Who knows what God can do? But Paul gives us a clue with his list of ordinary people who sacrificially gave of themselves, who took a risk, who performed selfless acts and endured great hardships for the sake of another. The Apostle Paul. They were committed to the end no matter what. What? They were ordinary people. Just like you and me. And so I guess the question is, will you be counted among them? Will you be counted among them? Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this time in your word. These last words in in Colossians. I thank you that you use ordinary people to do your work. Just ordinary people. Father, I pray that you would bring us to that place, just like you did D.L. Moody, where we are holy and fully consecrated and dedicated and devoted to you. Father, I pray that Jesus would be our everything. I pray that he would increase and that we would decrease. May you be honored and glorified in us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard the term fair-weathered friend? You ever heard that term? Someone's described as a as a fair-weathered friend. What's that mean? What does that mean? Anybody? Yeah, yeah. These are the kind of usually usually you got money, right? They're with you when times are good. Usually when you got money, right? But when the tough gets going, things are hard. Where are they? Nowhere to be found, right? Nowhere to be found. They're only around in the good times, for the good times. In Paul's list of ordinary people, they were not fair-weathered by any sense of the mean. Mark was at one time, and Demas was. But Mark got a second chance and proved that he was faithful.
I say all that to say this. I don't want to be a fair-weathered Christian. And what do I mean by that? You know, I'll serve as long as it's not an inconvenience to me. I'll follow you, Lord, as long as it's within my comfort zone. Right? I'll do what you ask, Lord, as long as it doesn't cost too much. Right? I don't want to be a fair-weathered Christian. I want to be like those guys that Paul brought up who were committed until the end. I hope that goes for you as well. Because following the Lord can be costly. And it might take you out of your comfort zone. And it will be inconvenient. Are you committed or not? That's the question, isn't it? And only you can only you can answer that. Maybe you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I would love to introduce you to him. He loves you far more than you ever know. And like Mark, he will give you a second chance. A third chance? A fourth chance? I could go on and on. He is so gracious and merciful and forgiving. If you don't know Him, I'd love to introduce you to Him. Maybe you're looking for a place to serve. This is where the Lord's planted you, you feel. Let me know. Whether today, just give me a call. Let me know. Or maybe there's something else. You just need prayer. Maybe you realize you are a fair-weathered Christian. And you don't want to be. Let me pray with you. However the Lord leads, I just ask that you respond to Him. Larry? Larry?